1506, on the eve of the Reformation, Erasmus, who was a, a Catholic a humanist scholar and a priest, he was ushered to the side of the road so that the reigning pope, Julius II, known as the warrior pope, could pass by leading his entourage of victorious troops, having just conquered Bologna. Erasmus, who would later reject the Reformation and remain Roman Catholic to his death, nevertheless noted how this supposed vicar of Christ on earth far more resembled his chosen namesake, Julius Caesar, than he did Jesus Christ. How did the supposed representative of the self-sacrificing Messiah, the one tasked with caring for the spiritual welfare of Christians globally, how did he find himself leading armies and conquering nations? By the next decade, the church was living lavishly and building monuments to itself while the majority of Europe was in poverty. Uh, building St. Peter's Basilica was going to take quite a lot of capital, and so the church came up with a brilliant strategy for fundraising. Uh, they sold something called indulgences. What this was is if you spent a large sum, you could purchase an indulgence, and you could have your sins or the sins of a relative, even a dead relative, completely wiped off the slate. And so they would come to you and they would say, you know, I, I know you think Granny was a saint, but let me tell you, Granny's got another 2,500 years in purgatory. Don't you love Granny? Okay, then give us this amount of money. And the, the line that they would use is as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. On an unrelated note, I just thought of a way we could raise money to build our parking lot. <coughs> It's, it's no wonder that we look back at this period of church history and think of it as a time of spiritual darkness. Now, these are just two of a large number of spiritual abuses. And like the Pharisees of old leading the sheep of Israel, the church had become overrun by blind guides and whitewashed tombs. Not shepherding, but rather feasting on the flock. And so much of Europe was cynical toward the church, and understandably so. The church, God's beloved children, as we saw last week, those of us who are called to imitate Christ, the light of the world, the church could only be described as darkness. And so it's no coincidence that one of the mottos of the Reformation became post-tenebras lux, after darkness, light, after darkness, light. What the Reformation accomplished more than anything else was the recovery of God's word at the very heart of the church. It recovered the light of Christ through the preaching of the one true gospel of Christ. The Reformation saw a movement from darkness to light on a massive scale. But what we see is that this international movement was actually made of uh, many smaller individual movements of people moving from the darkness of their sins into the light of Christ as they heard the gospel of Christ preached to them for the very first time. They trusted in Christ and they were brought from death to life, to use Paul's metaphor from chapter 2, or from darkness to light, to use his metaphor here in chapter 5. You see, as Paul will point out in our passage this morning, a Christian is someone who has been united by faith 
to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And so while we are born in darkness, we are made children of light. And this has very important implications for how we live. So if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 7. Ephesians 5, verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we do proclaim that you are good, that you are the definition of goodness, and that you have been good to us. God, we praise you because you're worthy of it. We could spend the rest of our lives praising you, and it would not be sufficient. It wouldn't scratch the surface of who you are. Lord, we ask this morning that as we open your word, you would empower us by your spirit to hear it, and for me to preach it. We ask that you would be glorified in our midst and fill our hearts with joy as we consider the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Christians have been made light in Christ. It's our first point this morning. Uh, Our passage begins and it says, Therefore, don't be partners or accomplices with them. Uh, When you come to the scriptures and it says, Therefore... Uh, You want to always ask, what is the therefore? Therefore? Uh, Yeah, you've been in church a while. (laughs) As you know, this was written as a letter, which we're preaching through in pieces. Uh, But it contains a single argument being unfolded in a logically progressive way. Every week is building on the weeks which came before. Which is why if you ever have to miss a week of church, I'd encourage you to just go on, even if you attended somewhere else, and... Listen to the sermon so you don't miss any context. Well, Paul says, do not become partners with them. Who's them? We have to go back to last week for that. Go look at verse 6. He's talking about the sons of disobedience upon whom the wrath of God comes. Those who are characterized, uh, if you go back even further, who are the sons of disobedience, you look at verse 5. These are those who are characterized by our idolatry. Those who walk in selfishness rather than love. If we go back even further into chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, we find out that these sons of disobedience are actually who we once were. Following the world, following the devil, giving in to the passions of our flesh. This is the state of spiritual death and darkness out of which Paul says God made us alive in Christ. Now this partner word, he says, do not be partners with them. It's the same word that he uses back in chapter 3, verse 6. I'll read it to you, 3, 6. He says, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and the word, partakers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So there he's saying that Jews and Gentiles partake in the same promise. We're being told in chapter 5, verse 7, not to partake in disobedience with the sons of disobedience of whom we 
once belonged. Now, I just want to be clear for a second what this is not saying. Uh, this is not saying that we refuse to associate with non-Christians. Uh, this is not saying that we build walls around our lives and families or seclude ourselves in monasteries. That will become especially clear in verse 11. Uh, Christians cannot fulfill our mission of making disciples of all nations if we're not uh, in the nations, if we're not uh, interacting with non-Christians. It's a wonderful thing to have non-Christian friends. You see, Jesus, the only perfect person, the only perfectly righteous person in history, was also known as a friend of sinners. But he never sinned with sinners. He was not influenced to take part in works of darkness, to become an accomplice of darkness, but he brought the light of the gospel to those who desperately need it. He says that I didn't come to call the righteous, of whom there are none on their own, but I came to call sinners. So yes, be friends with people outside of the faith, but not in a way that compromises your witness in Christ. All right, so we're not to partake with wickedness with those still trapped in darkness. Why? Well, he continues in verse 8. He says, for you were darkness. He's giving us our own history lesson. And now you are light in the world. Note how carefully he says this. And what he doesn't say, he doesn't say, for you were in darkness and now you are in the light. He says, you were darkness and are now light. He's not addressing your context, he's addressing your nature. He said, previously before Christ, you were spiritually dead. In 4.17, he wrote that the Gentiles had a futility of mind, that they were darkened in their understanding because of the ignorance of God that is in them. And so those apart from God, he says, are darkness. And in 4.19, he says, they act in a manner which reveals their nature. In other words, we human beings reveal our natures. Last fall, I went with um, my family and some friends to go peach picking, which is really fun. We went to Ward's Berry Farm in Sharon. And uh, you go into an orchard. Do you call a group of peach trees an orchard? Like you do? Okay. Good. Just making sure. So we went to an orchard, and there were a bunch of peach trees. Actually, there were two types of trees there. There were peaches, and there were nectarines. And perhaps I have an untrained eye, but to me, uh, the peach trees and the nectarine trees were virtually identical, except for uh, one obvious difference, which was hanging on their branches. The nectarine trees produced nectarines, which are kind of like, <laughs> thank you, Captain Obvious. The nectarine trees produced nectarines, and, and those are like clean-shaven peaches. And the peach trees produced peaches, which are like really hairy nectarines. <laughs> In other words, the nature of the tree determined the kind of fruit that it would produce. And the fruit of the tree revealed the nature of the tree. And so it's truly remarkable when we stop to consider the good news of the gospel. It's not just forgiveness of sins. We in Christ have undergone a change of nature, spiritually speaking. 
You were darkness, he reminds us. We were sons of disobedience and children of wrath. But listen carefully, a Christian is not just someone who says, I trust in Christ. A Christian is someone who has been united to Christ in faith. And being united to Christ, there has been a change of nature. He says, on your own, you were darkness. Now, in Christ, you are light. There's this silly notion going around in evangelicalism that we Christians are no different than the world, but that we've been forgiven. And this is one of the unfortunate have-truths of the 20th century. In an effort to gain followers and power, we evangelicals divorced ethical change from gospel promises. We promised that for a one-time admission of guilt, you could be completely forgiven and live the rest of your life at odds with the teachings of Christ so long as you claim to follow him. Uh, Certainly you can remain in darkness as long as you've prayed a prayer or as long as you've been baptized. Well, let me tell you that this teaching is painfully at odds with the clear teaching of the New Testament. True faith is always accompanied by a change of nature, from darkness to light. Jesus does not justify anyone whom he does not also sanctify. So sometimes people will ask me, how is it that I can know that I'm a Christian? Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a a new creation. The old is gone and the new is come. A Christian is someone who was darkness but now is light. And so like the example of the trees, the way that you look at a change of nature is by looking at the fruit. Certainly the fruit does not save us in any way, but the fruit is evidence that God has done work on our hearts. And so uh, how can I know that I'm a Christian? Is there evidence that I'm a Christian? Am I new? Am I I light? Is there fruit of the Holy Spirit in my life? Now, when the world hears us say something like, we Christians are light, they charge us with putting ourselves up on a pedestal and looking down on everyone else. But what the world misses is the five words in verse 8. These five words. You were... And in the Lord. We were darkness and in the Lord we are light. You see the Christian life is grace from beginning to end. Yes we do believe that Christians are different in a good way. But it is absolutely not because we had anything to do with it. We were spiritually dead and incapable of helping ourselves and God made us alive in Christ. We owed an insurmountable debt of sin and Christ paid the debt for that sin on the cross. It is by grace, he says, we have been saved through faith and not of works, lest any man should boast. If you are in Christ, it is because God has been gracious to you, not because you deserve to be. Yes, we're lights, but we've been made that way by the grace of God. Well, so far in the second half of Ephesians, we've been called to walk in unity in a manner worthy of our calling. Uh, We've been called to walk in holiness, to walk in love last week. Uh, And now we're called to walk as children of light. As I'm thinking about this, I'm I'm wondering, have you ever thought about how painful 
it can be to walk in the darkness. Literally. Darkness is the absence of light. Dangers are obscured and hidden in the darkness waiting for us to stumble over them. When I get up in the middle of the night, I have learned since having children to turn on the light. Because the layout of my house is no longer consistent from day to day. (laughs) Dangers lurk, waiting for me to trip over them. Carts and boxes and toys and tiny little plastic Lego blocks, which somehow inflict more pain than you ever thought possible. (laughs) So I walk in the light, even though it wakes me up. Paul says, walk as children of light. And so in verse 9, walking as children of light means we will produce fruit. Remember that that we produce according to our nature. Uh, A peach tree doesn't have to decide to produce peaches. It does it naturally. If the nature is light in Christ, uh, then Paul says we will produce fruit. And the fruit is righteousness and goodness and truth. These are things which are great for us as individuals, they're great for our families, they're great for the church, and they're great for society at large. The fruit of the light. It's the same thing he taught in Galatians 5. There as here he contrasts the fruit of the Spirit, that which the Spirit produces in us, with the works of the flesh. Those things which we naturally, if we are in darkness, produce. Walking as children of the light also means, if we look at verse 10... That we try to discern what is pleasing to God. You see, the person who's in darkness and coming to a decision about something is not even asking that question. What would be most pleasing to God? Uh, But the person, uh, that person is more concerned with what will please himself. The child of light, however, in being united to Christ, is asking what would in this situation most please God. Now, if I want to communicate to my wife that I love her, if I want to do something that will please her, uh, I'm not going to take her to a gun show. And I'm not going to take her to a Star Wars convention. Uh, I admit that doing either of those things would be pleasing to me. And as you might imagine, they would not be pleasing for Meredith. How do I know? No, it's not that bad. I I haven't tried that. Actually, in my first draft, I said uh, I wouldn't take her to a monster truck rally. And she said, actually, I think that would be fun. So So find yourselves a wife who will go to a monster truck rally. (laughs) I'm completely undercutting my point. I know that I shouldn't take her to a gun show or Star Wars convention because I know my wife, because I've spent time with her, because I have a relationship with her. So, how do we discern what pleases God? Unfortunately, there are no shortcuts. Yes, we're guided by the Spirit. Yes, we're guided by the Word. But the very word there, discern, means that our minds are involved in this process. Christian, you're called to think. The word of God is sufficient for Christian living, but it gives us principles and truths. It doesn't spell out every situation in which you will ever face. 
my boss has been a jerk for a while. I'm feeling oppressed. I'm going to go to Exodus and find out what to do. I guess I'm going to release locusts in his office. <laughs> Probably even worse if you go to judges looking for uh, that kind of advice. Now, we as Christians have to discern what would please God. And to please God, that means we must know God. And we come to know God through his word and through prayer. And so we have to learn to think theologically about our lives and our decisions because we want to please God in all things. Sometimes the decision is obvious. Like, this is clearly sin. This is clearly not sin. Sometimes we're dealing with gray areas. And we need God's wisdom. As Ben prayed, that we would... Ask God for wisdom. But the thing is, if we're trying to discern what would please God, we stand no chance if we're not seeking him and if we're choosing to walk in darkness. All right, so in verses 7 to 10, we see that those who have trusted in Christ, those who have been made light in the Lord, are called to reject darkness and walk as children of the light. In our final verses this morning, we'll see that Christians are not just called to reject darkness, but we're called to bring that light into the darkness. Let's pick up chapter 5, verse 11. He says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to speak, even to speak, of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. <clears throat> if I were to give you a lecture on how to build a winning culture on your football team, or if I were to give you a lecture on what it's like when your team wins the Super Bowl or even makes it to the Super Bowl, you would be wise to question the validity of my advice. I'm a Jaguars fan. We know nothing of winning cultures and even less of Super Bowls. To pretend otherwise would be operating in a way which is incompatible with my nature and experience as a Jags fan. Well, in verse 11, Paul is saying something similar to what he said in verse 7. There, there he mentions that we're not supposed to be accomplices with those in wickedness. Here in 11, he says that we are to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Why? Because it would be against our nature. Uh, to do so would be, would be to walk as if we were still darkness, but we have been made light. That's the grace of God in making us light. To, to go back into this would be to deny the change that Christ has wrought in us. Well, he goes on and he starts to talk about what sort of works of darkness he's mentioning. And the, the first thing that we notice is that while the light produces fruit of the Spirit, righteousness, goodness, and truth, things which benefit many others besides yourself, the darkness produces works which are described as unfruitful. Uh, they don't have positive value. They run counter to God's design. And not only do they not have value, they actually have a negative value. They negatively impact those around you. Uh, this is, uh, don't be fooled, this is a, a truth about sin. Sin always 
has a profound impact, far greater than just you. It impacts those around you. But what is it about darkness? If I can just muse on darkness for a moment. In the Bible, bad things happen in the dark. Jesus was betrayed not in broad daylight, but he was betrayed at night when no one was around to witness his arrest. Uh, sin in darkness is a theme in Scripture, but it is a theme which holds true for our own lives as well. Uh, when is it that you sin? When is it that you give in to temptation? Is it not often in the dark, away from prying eyes, when we are convinced that no one is watching? There's something psychological about the dark which just makes it easier for us to justify sin. It feels secretive. It feels like a safe space to do evil. Now, unless you live in downtown San Francisco, major crimes typically don't happen in broad daylight, but under the cover of night. Even secular people understand and use the saying, nothing good happens after midnight. You see, there's a reason you don't feel safe walking down a dark alley by yourself. There's a reason we refer to a certain lifestyle as the night life. Well, I can tell you this morning that the night life has about as much to do with righteousness as darkness has to do with light. Paul writes, it is shameful even to speak of the things that they, the sons of disobedience, do in secret in the dark. If I can just be so bold as to apply this practically as a matter of wisdom, I'd ask you this, Christian, do you find yourself regularly staying up late into the night by yourself? Does this late night activity coincide with temptation and with sin? I'm not trying to sound legalistic, but this is a practical matter. Is your, is your time, the bulk of your time spent in the dark? Or doing things that are only appropriate in the dark? Would you be comfortable with your night behavior becoming public knowledge? Then it probably is not good for you. Paul points out in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 5, he says, For you are children of the light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. <clears throat> There's a lot of wisdom I'm not talking about if you have a job at night, but there's a lot of wisdom in sleeping at night and working hard and living in the daytime. Now, I mentioned that the New Testament never sanctions withdrawal from the world. We are to be in the world, Jesus says, though not of the world. We're to, we're to engage with those who don't share our faith. But how do I know this? He says... Not only are we to not partake in the wicked, dark deeds, but we are to, verse 11, expose them for what they are. One of the great lies which has become so commonplace in our culture that I'm going to seem like a real jerk for even daring to challenge it is this notion that everyone is perfect just the way that you are. Yes, all humans are made in the image of God. All humans have dignity and value. But nowhere in the scriptures will you see this idea that what we need most is simply to accept ourselves or that we need to follow our hearts. 
No, people need to come to recognize that you are not okay just the way that you are. Sin has deeply damaged the human race. It has set us against a holy and righteous God. And Christ alone can make us whole. Christ alone, through his atoning sacrifice, can reconcile us to God. So your mission, Christian, should you choose to accept it, is to bring the light of Christ to those who do not know him. To expose the deceitfulness of sin. There is a way which seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And Jesus tells us of this way. He says, wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And few find it. The reality is that the world is on this broad road, the broad gate, and it seems right. But only because they are walking in darkness. In love we have been commanded by Jesus to go and preach good news, to expose sin for what it is and where it leads with the light of Christ. Of course, we, we do this in love always. We make friends, we show that we care, we, we, we love people tangibly, and as the opportunity arises, we speak the truth of the gospel into their lives because apart from speaking that gospel truth, nothing that we've done has any eternal value. We have a slide for this. Jesus said of his own ministry in John 3, he said this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Listen, uh, coming to the light is not a pleasant experience. Uh, Many of us here were, were brought into the light kicking and screaming and desperately clinging to our sins. And yet God was merciful and gracious. He's a good God. It's a painful experience to behold the light of the world, his absolute purity, his perfect righteousness, his complete holiness, and then to descend from uh, observing Christ and to look upon ourselves. Because when we do that, we're, we're no longer judging our own lives relative to those around us. When we behold Christ, we recognize just how short of God's standard we fall. All excuses fall to the wayside. All of our self-justification melts like wax in the light of his glory. And the light reveals what the darkness tried to hide. And it's at this point that the sinner has a choice to make. Will I leave darkness behind and bask in the glorious light of the Son of God? Or like a mouse scurrying to the darkness when you flip on the light switch? Will I flee to the darkness because of my love of sin and because the darkness feels safe. Paul writes in verse 13 that anything exposed by the light becomes visible. 
It's another one of those obvious moments. Thank you, Paul. Something that is exposed by light becomes visible. Light dispels the darkness. But the difference is that the light of Christ differs from ordinary light. Normally when you shine a light on an object, that object is revealed. It is, uh, the, the darkness is dispelled. Light reveals what darkness hides. But the light of Christ, according to verses 13 and 14, takes it a step further. This light actually has a transformative effect on the objects which it shines on. He says this, anything that becomes visible is light. Those who are brought into the light of Christ can be transformed into that light, out of darkness. This is the experience of every Christian. A change of nature with the corresponding fruit to prove it. Christian, you have been commissioned to make disciples, to preach good news, to expose the deceitfulness of sin and darkness and to do it with love. But you are not responsible for how people will respond. Jesus tells us that his sheep are out there. He says, my sheep will hear my voice and they will respond to it. And so we preach the good news to all, recognizing that many will reject it and choose to remain in darkness. But some, some will hear his voice and respond in faith. And they also will become light as they are united to the light of the world. Paul closes by quoting what is probably an early Christian hymn. Something which Christians in the early church would sing to each other as encouragement. He says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I wonder if any of you here, if you're being honest, would say that you are stuck walking in darkness. You're not sure where you're going, and you wonder if there's more to life than simply living for the moment living to please yourself. Well, this verse is for you. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Jesus died to pay for sin, and Jesus rose again to intercede for you to God above. And in John 8, 12, he promises you this. Because again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Yes, it is painful to first experience the light of Christ. It reveals our sins, but that same light is the light of life and life abundant. It, it lights our path and it makes us into lights so that we're not lost in the dark. This morning, Christ invites you to follow him. And if you have any questions about what that means, I'd be happy to talk to you at any point. Brothers and sisters, God warns us to walk as children of the light because the temptation to darkness is ever-present. Like the church of the 16th century, the 21st century church can abandon the truth of God's word and walk in darkness. But if we have truly been united to Christ in faith, then our nature is light. And we have the opportunity to bring the light of Christ to a world walking in darkness. Let's commit ourselves to doing that. Let's pray.